you have found the Thinking Mind podcast. Today we're going to be answering a listener question, or rather a series of questions. And I guess, as with most of the information I give on this podcast, I never really wanted to be the final answer, but rather I just wanted to stimulate your own thoughts on whatever the subject is. And these questions start off a bit psychological, but then they kind of meander more into the philosophical range. So that being the case, I especially want it to be just something to stimulate your own thoughts so that you can formulate your own opinion on the subject. Today we're going to be answering a listener question. And what he asks is this. The pandemic has caused a lot of people to reevaluate their values. What is it that drives us? What is it that we want to achieve in life? Are we money-centric, friend-centric, family-centric? What happens when one or more of these things isn't available anymore? The suffering is both financial as well as existential. So how does one pick themselves up from a failure in one of these different areas? And how does one know that their compass is well calibrated? There's quite a series of questions, but I'm going to do my best to answer them. So let's take the first question. The pandemic has caused a lot of people to reevaluate their values. What is it that drives us? What is it that we want to achieve in life? Are we money centric, friend centric, family centric? So, what I would say about this is really we're asking a question about personality because personality is that which dictates fundamentally what we're interested in and what we want to work towards. And you gave a few different examples, money, friendship, family. I think a good model of personality is the big five personality trait model, which is a model that was initially conceived in the 1960s and then became more popular academically in the 80s and 90s. And it's not without its criticisms. But I think it's a good model because unlike other theories of personality, this theory was derived from statistical data. What you have with other personality theories is they come up with the theory and then they try and prove the theory through statistics. Whereas with the Big Five, there was no theory that they had in mind before. And rather what they did was they asked people lots of personality-oriented questions. And then they did what's called a factor analysis, which is a statistical technique. And what they found was that the answer tended to group along five different traits. So what you find with the big five personality model is that it essentially conceives of people's personalities as five different spectrums. And you can be at any point on any of the five spectrums. And essentially, the spectrums are, one, openness to experience, two, agreeableness, three, extroversion, four, conscientiousness, and five, neuroticism. So let's take the first one. Openness is essentially the degree to which you're interested in new ideas, new ways of thinking, and uh, aesthetics. 
Agreeableness is the extent to which you care about other people and value social harmony versus the extent to which you are self-centered and take care of yourself. Extroversion is how extroverted you are, how outgoing you are, how much you value spending time with large groups of other people versus how much you value spending time by yourself or in one-on-one situations. Conscientiousness is how hardworking you are, how hardworking you're predisposed to be, and how orderly you are, how much you like things in a very tight, specific order, versus how laid back and leisurely you are. And neuroticism is how sensitive you are to negative emotions like anxiety, sadness, etc. So what you can see in answer to your question, people will obviously vary in to what extent they, for example, value if you, if you really value friendship and family, for instance, you're probably going to be high in agreeableness. Someone who's lower in agreeableness might be more comfortable uh, looking out for themselves, being more of a lone wolf kind of figure. Uh, and then that will vary as well, depending on how introverted or extroverted they are. People who are high in conscientiousness will value hard work and achievement and success. And usually a proxy for that in Western society is financial achievement and material gain. People who are low in conscientiousness will probably value fun and and leisure and moment-to-moment experiences more. People who are high in openness will very much value newness, novelty, new ideas, aesthetic beauty and art, whereas People who are low in openness tend to be more conservative in that regard. They like to do things the way they've always been done. Um, they prefer execution of existing ways of, of thinking rather than taking the time to come up with new ways. People who are high in neuroticism tend to value stability, obviously, because they're very sensitive to negative emotions. People who are low in neuroticism might be more prone to novelty seeking they tend to be more resilient um, it's important to point out that all of these traits exist in us because they're all adaptive they're all valuable in certain situations and so we've evolved to have people who have a mix of all different kinds of traits in order to meet all the different and unpredictable challenges that life throws at us Interestingly, more recent personality research has posited that there might actually be a sixth trait, a sixth spectrum called honesty, humility. And that's people who are high in honesty, humility, obviously are very honest, transparent uh, and value that sense of being open and straightforward. Whereas people low in honesty, humility might be more subtle, shrewd, subversive, deceptive, etc. I think you find that most people are kind of a balance of the different traits, but then obviously some people will be outliers. So I think most people need some sort of career path, but they also value friendships, but they also value romantic relationships, but there'll be the odd outlier that might disproportionately value one trait very heavily, like career or other people might disproportionately really value relationships or or family. So really, you want to figure out where you lie on the different traits as a kind of just to get an idea 
of what your preferences are. I would suspect that like most people, you might be a balance of the different traits, as I mentioned. So a good way to develop a bit of a map of, you know, what your values are is to take a, a big five personality test and that'll give you a sense of where you lie on, on the different traits. So the next part of the question is, what happens when one or more of these things isn't available anymore? I think it's unlikely that in an individual's life that one of these things would be become entirely unavailable. Like it's very unlikely that the possibility of work, for example, would disappear entirely. It's possible that your work might disappear or your job might disappear. And obviously we're seeing that in a big way because of the pandemic. But there is a bigger abstraction, which is the concept of work. And it's very unlikely that that's going to disappear entirely. It's unlikely that relationships, romantic or family relationships are going to disappear entirely. Of course, you do get extreme scenarios. But in all likelihood, rather than one of these things disappearing, what you're going to get is your current version of that thing disappearing. And what that means for the individual is that they're going to have to reconfigure, you know, their plan in their life or how it is that they pursue that thing. So if they have a particular job, for example, let's say they work in the catering industry and that job disappears because of the pandemic, they need to figure out either how to do a similar job under the new circumstances or maybe even consider uh, pursuing a new job altogether or consider some sort of plan that can hold them over until the conditions change such that they can do their old job again. And I think there's obviously quite a painful process of adaptation, but an important thing worth keeping in mind is that Human beings are really designed to continually adapt to new situations and that's how we became the dominant species on the planet. And the good way of thinking about it is that often it's the process of adaptation itself that can bring us the most joy and satisfaction rather than reaping the rewards of having adapted. And we know this because, for example, this is exactly the way video games are constructed. Like, you don't get the most pleasure out of video games once you've finished playing the game. You get the most pleasure usually when the level of difficulty increases. And obviously, all the good video games are designed <coughs> so that the difficulty incrementally increases. And you get the most pleasure as you adapt to the ever-increasing difficulty. And so, life is like that. But the, I guess the problem with life is that Unlike a video game, it's not neatly designed so that the difficulty is gradually increased, but rather sometimes cat catastrophic events happen where all of a sudden we're thrown into a completely overwhelming and very difficult situation. But as we'll discuss later, you, can, you really can design your own plans and your own rules so that whatever endeavor you're pursuing, you can gradually increase the difficulty yourself and hopefully set the rules yourself to give yourself that uh, to allow yourself to fall in love with the process so that's something we'll discuss in, in a second you then go on to say the suffering is both financial as well as existential and i agree with you i think finances again in western society are often just a proxy for 
success and fulfillment and it's a good proxy for obvious reasons but often it isn't the money itself which for example people who are hyper wealthy are searching for because if that was the case then once they get hyper wealthy they'd stop trying to earn more money but they don't normally do that they normally continue with their pursuits and i think there's something to learn here and that i think successful people are often successful because they've fallen in love with the process rather than continually being fixated on and chasing the results so the dark side of this is that i think some people fall in love with some kind of process and and cling to it to overcompensate for some kind of basic anxiety or insecurity in a book which i recommend a lot called neurosis and human growth by karen horney she describes this as the search for glory and it's a kind of neurotic attempt to overcompensate for some insecurity by by mastering something and i don't think you necessarily want to do that i think you want to try and achieve success as much as possible from a place of health and and self acceptance in any case i think you're right you don't only suffer because you lack money even though money is obviously important but really something more fundamental is taken away when your when your job is taken away which is we get from our jobs a, a basic sense of usefulness and productivity and a means of sort of negotiating with with the world and of trading value with the world so then you then go on to ask how does one pick themselves up from failure in one of these different areas so this is probably the toughest part of the question i think before discussing failure it's probably a good idea to talk about what one's definition of success is and i don't think this is talked about enough often when pursuing a particular endeavor we don't really take the time to specify what our definition of success is going to be and i think if that's not examined then our definitions of success are often unconscious vague and unrealistic and this of course dooms us inevitably to failure and it really dysregulates our emotions and then once that happens we tend to give up quite quickly and since success often in large part is due to very kind of dogged perseverance and this isn't really an acceptable way of of thinking about things so i think firstly before talking about failure you want to establish your criteria of success and i think the criteria for success have to be very very specific achievable and flexible because usually when you go about a particular endeavor it's likely that you'll learn new information that will then compel you to change your definition of success as you deem appropriate if for example you want to start dieting and exercising because you want to look better you might start out focusing a lot on losing fat for instance and then later on you might learn new information and realize that you also want to engage in building muscle and those are two completely different processes so you start out with one idea of what it might be to achieve your goals and then things change as you kind of pursue pursue the path i think a good rule of thumb for success is slightly more successful than last time a lot of success is through slow incremental progress and not through the rapid overnight success 
that our culture, particularly internet culture, has kind of conditioned us to to believe in. So another example, if I release a podcast and that gets 100 downloads, then perhaps a good definition of success for my next podcast might be getting 105, 110, and 120 downloads rather than 1,000 downloads. So again, it's a very specific goal and, and it's very achievable. And that's a simple enough way of thinking about it. But another aspect of thinking about success that might be useful is to think in terms of process versus results. So are you going to think about success more in terms of the process you engage in or more in terms of the results that you get? And I think you, to some degree you have to do both. More often than not, we don't think about process at all and we, we lean heavily towards results. But the advantage of thinking more about the process you engage in and defining success on those terms is you're aligning your emotional systems more towards factors that are within your control and less to those which are out of, outside of your control. So, for example, you could think of putting in four hours a day of work on your business instead of two hours a day. That's success in terms of the process you're engaging in irrespective of what results you might get from the four hours versus the two hours. So you're making an effort to improve your process. Now, why would you want to align your emotional systems in this way? It's because emotions are ultimately what, what's going to allow you to put in the necessary hours of tedious work, especially at the beginning of an enterprise, in order to gain some kind of degree of competency. And it will allow you to be a bit more resilient when things outside of your control don't go your own way. So to summarize, you can think about both process and results, and you can define your success as not just getting better results, but also improving your process. So to deal with your actual question, how to deal with failure, the key is, I think, to deal with your failure as information and, and feedback from reality and not as fuel for some unhelpful narrative that you've developed about your life. And you'll know that this is happening if you catch yourself having thoughts like, why does this always happen to me? Or it's always going to turn out like this, or this is so typical. And this is fundamentally important because failure, as we all know, is inevitable. And a life without failure is not only unachievable, but frankly, undesirable. I made a clip kind of conveying this idea called pain versus suffering, which you might want to check out. So in this case, failure is a form of pain. And as much as possible, you don't want to let it drag you down into unnecessary suffering. This is partly addressed by being careful about how you define success, as we talked about earlier. But it's also done by when you do fail, carefully accepting and analyzing your failure from a perspective that's calm and rational. Broadly, I think this process requires a kind of balance between self-encouragement and self-compassion. So when you're pursuing something, the self-compassion allows you to accept yourself wherever you happen to find yourself on the path while self-encouragement will allow you to analyze your situation and, and to persevere. 
So in a sense, you're kind of parenting yourself and you're being both a nurturing mother and an encouraging father to yourself. And I, I think that's very important. So the last part of your question is, how does that one know that their compass is well calibrated? So by compass, I'm going to assume you're meaning emotions primarily as the majority of our actions are motivated by emotions as opposed to rationality, as most people unconsciously believe. But I also think our thoughts play a role here and maybe what you could call our intuition. I think it's a good question and it's not really discussed enough. I think we calibrate our our compass, as it were, by continually doing activities which ground us in reality. I think that people who don't ground themselves in reality often get plunged deeper and deeper into a fantasy world. And obviously this could be a positive fantasy like narcissism or a negative fantasy like self-hate, social anxiety, etc. We're all in a fantasy some degree or another and I think that's part of the function of the human mind is to soften reality and to create these narratives through which we live our lives. But the more you engage in activities that ground you in reality, I think the healthier you are and the less you're caught up in this in this fantasy world. So one question you could ask yourself to help you decide whether or not an activity is worth pursuing or not is does this activity ground me more in reality or does it put me more and more into a fantasy world? So let's look at some examples. Some activities which ground you more in reality are activities like physical exercise, learning a new musical instrument, meditation, journaling, where you try and express yourself as authentically as possible, really capture what you're thinking and feeling, having a conversation with someone, again, where you make the goal to try and express yourself as authentically as possible, operating a business, martial arts, all of these things move you more towards reality and away from fantasy, more towards authenticity or congruence and away from incongruence or inauthenticity. Here are some things which I think ground you further in fantasy. Gossip, watching of bad television, especially and ironically reality television, procrastination, Twitter, drinking alcohol excessively, using drugs, particularly drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine, opiates, etc. Eating junk food, pornography, and communicating with others through text-only mediums like WhatsApp and email. The more you do activities like that, the more you can wind up with quite unhelpful thoughts and unrealistic views of the world. So I'd recommend thinking carefully about how you spend your time and as much as possible maximizing the amount of time spent doing those activities which ground you more in reality and minimizing those which put you deeper into fantasy. So I hope you found the answer to that question useful. If anyone has any further thoughts or questions you'd like me to answer, please don't hesitate to email and we look forward to hearing from you. You are listening to The Thinking Mind Podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd love it if you share it with a friend 
or you can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you fancy it, you can even buy us a coffee to support the team, and the links for that will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening.